0: Welcome to Bible Study, Parody, and Subversion in Matthew's Gospel. In the last two weeks, I've covered Chapter 6, the middle chapter in what is commonly known as the Sermon on the Mount, And I've been arguing that we should understand these chapters not as a sermon by a religious figure, but as a speech by a social revolutionary. And I should also add that it is a teaching given by a rabbi. So it appears to be a combination of a speech by a social revolutionary and a teaching by a rabbi, specifically a peasant rabbi, which flips the conventional script since rabbis were usually from the upper classes. In the last two episodes, I've argued that Jesus, in chapter 6, addresses the problem of the patronage system, a Roman or Greco-Roman system by which the common people must lavish praise and honor on the upper classes in order to get what they need to survive in the form of gifts. This system, praised by Roman poets, concealed a more pervasive economy of extraction in which the upper classes extracted taxes, rent, and the consequent debt payments from the peasantry. Jesus proposes instead an economy of mutual aid rooted in Israelite peasant traditions. In this episode, we will explore chapter 7 in Matthew, in which Jesus continues to call for the kind of solidarity necessary for an economy and culture of mutual aid. My name is Bert Newton, and this is episode 14 of Bible study, parody and subversion in Matthew's Gospel. Chapter 7 reads at first blush like a lot of disconnected random sayings stuck together. Partly that is because the style is a sort of wisdom speak, the kind of language used in ancient Hebrew wisdom literature, which tends to run a lot of pithy proverbs together end on end. But there are references in these sayings that the original audience likely understood, but that elude the modern Western reader. Let's begin with the first five verses. Do not judge so that you may not be judged, for with the judgment you make, you will be judged, and the measure you give will be the measure you get. Why do you see the speck in your neighbor's eye, but do not notice the log in your own eye? Or how can you say to your neighbor, let me take the speck out of your eye while the log is in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, then you will be able to see clearly to take the speck out of your neighbor's eye. To our modern ears, this sounds like rather sensible and timeless advice to not be too judgy with each other, and it appears disconnected to the previous material in chapter 6. But in its first century context, this passage speaks to more than just annoying judgmental attitudes, and it flows naturally from the economic concerns of the last chapter. As I reviewed in the introduction to this episode, Jesus in chapter 6 attacks the patronage system mentality that serves as a cover for the elite economic domination of the peasantry. Jesus instead proposes an economy of mutual aid. While it may seem like Jesus in chapter 7 changes the topic to address judgmental attitudes, the original audience likely heard something else. The original audience probably heard Jesus rebuke the hierarchical pecking order among the common people that plays into the ethos of the patronage system and prevents the kind of solidarity necessary for an economy and culture of mutual aid. Bruce Molina and Richard Rohrbaugh, Bible scholars who have analyzed the gospel through the lens of culture, describe Jesus' statements here this way, Quote, In honor-shame societies, such negative judgment is largely a matter of stereotyping, labels placed on people, sinner, tax collector, woman of the city, carpenter's son, pigeonhole them, and thereby both determine status and control the interaction with others. Melina and Rohrbaugh's description of the issue that Jesus addresses in this passage brings to light how peasant attitudes toward those they feel superior to were based on perceptions of behaviors and flaws that could be judged. Sinners sin, tax collectors collect taxes for the hated Romans, and women of the city do unmentionable things, resulting in a hierarchy among the people which presented a significant obstacle to solidarity. Jesus' words in these verses aim to short-circuit this judgment and call people to the humility of self-correction and then to the work of helping each other out. In other words, Jesus says, Stop judging the sex worker and the small-time tax collector and anyone else you look down on. Take the speck out of your own eye first, then you will be able to see to help your neighbor. Mere judgment gets us nowhere and keeps us divided. Jesus continues in verse 6. Do not give what is holy to dogs, and do not throw your pearls before swine, or they will trample them underfoot and turn and maul you. Here is another saying that seems like a non-sequitur, kind of random, and that's because we don't immediately get the reference to the foreign occupiers. Dogs and swine are slurs against Gentiles, but before you think that Jesus is merely being xenophobic, Remember that most of the Gentiles in Galilee at the time were the Roman occupying forces as well as other Gentiles who were sent to settle there by the Romans as an occupying civilian population. They were settlers. In fact, the upper classes in Galilee at this time were often Gentile. Scholars are divided as to whether they were the majority, but they were a very strong presence and even The Jewish upper classes might be seen by the peasantry as effectively Gentile, because they often took on the culture of the Gentile upper classes and were seen as collaborators. Jesus seems to be telling his followers not to give them, not to give the upper classes praise and honor for their patronage. What is holy is praise and honor. After attacking the patronage system mentality in chapter 6 and encouraging instead an economy of mutual aid among the common people, and then starting out this chapter by calling for an end to judgmentalism that results in a pecking order among the people, preventing solidarity, Jesus now, here in verse 6 of chapter 7, more directly attacks the patronage system itself, not just the mentality that affects the common people— But the system itself, which is run by the upper classes, he attacks it by telling his people that if they give honor to the wealthy Gentiles in Galilee, in hopes of receiving material benefit, these same elites will only solidify their power and maul the people through taxation, rent increases, and debt traps. Jesus' use of slur words for the Gentile elite may be a rhetorical way of telling his people that it is not the common sinners, the sex workers who sell their bodies to avoid starvation, or the small-time tax collectors who sell their souls to put food on the table. These are not the ones to judge. Judge instead the upper classes who demand your praise so that they can throw you a chicken while stealing you blind in taxes, rent, and debt schemes. Jesus then assures them that the alternative economic system of mutual aid will work. In the next five verses, verses 7 to 11, he says, Ask, and it will be given you. Search, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be open for you. For everyone who asks receives, and everyone who searches finds, and for everyone who knocks the door will be opened. Is there any one among you who if your child asks for bread will give him a stone? Or if the child asks for a fish will give him a snake? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good things to those who ask him? If these verses sound like they are merely encouraging pious faith in God, to provide for individual or family needs and have nothing to do with earthly economics. Remember that, as I explained in episode 12, that storing up treasure in heaven was a euphemism for investing in the economy and security of mutual aid. God provides through the system of mutual aid. Of course, we modern Western readers are thrown by Jesus saying, if you who are evil know how to give good gifts, but that is just Middle Eastern hyperbole to emphasize a point. The next verse makes clear that Jesus is not speaking of mere vertical relationships between individuals and God. The language returns to the kind of verbiage even we understand as describing the horizontal relationship between people. In verse 12, Jesus says, In everything, do to others, As you would have them do to you, for this is the law and the prophets. This famous saying, often referred to as the Golden Rule, constitutes the foundation of a culture and economy of mutual aid. And Matthew's Jesus presents it as the summary of the Israelite tradition, the law and the prophets. Presenting it as a summary of the law and the prophets both serves as a literary inclusio, a bookend for the main body of the speech and locates it in the people's cultural heritage over against that of the foreign occupier. Back in the first part of this speech or teaching, in chapter 5, verse 17, Jesus says that he came to fulfill the law and the prophets. Now toward the end of this speech or teaching, having admonished his hearers to solidarity, rejecting the Roman patronage system, he rhetorically identifies the economy and culture of mutual aid as the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. So this phrase functions as an inclusio or bookend for this section of Matthew. Although Jesus presents the economy of mutual aid as a safer and more secure system, he knows that the struggle for this alternative new society – rooted in Israelite peasant traditions, will not be easy. So he says in the next two verses, Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the road is easy that leads to destruction, and there are many who take it. For the gate is narrow and the road is hard that leads to life, and there are few who find it. Following the path of the patronage system is easy in the sense that it is the path of least resistance but it leads to death. Choosing instead the economy of mutual aid is hard, but it leads to life. The language of gates and roads may feel generic to us who live in the modern world where roads are everywhere and gates rarely serve any major symbolic function. But in the first century Mediterranean world, roads were fewer and therefore loomed larger in the landscape of that world. And gates served as major mediums for communicating messages for the empire. Matthew scholar Warren Carter describes the significance of roads and gates in the ancient Roman world this way. Quote, gates and roads were instruments of Roman control and propaganda. Above Antioch's eastern gate, many scholars believe that Matthew was written in Antioch, above Antioch's eastern gate, built by Tiberius, was the she-wolf nursing Romulus and Remus, Rome's legendary founders, a monument to Rome's sovereignty. Titus displayed the spoils from the defeated Jerusalem temple on the gate leading to Daphne. The construction of roads and bridges was a Roman trademark. Aristides celebrates it as a means for spreading civilization and order. Roads carried Roman troops and ensured Roman control. They enabled economic exploitation in carrying goods to cities such as Rome, especially tax levies and tributes. Gates and roads then attest military might, violent and enforced submission, and economic exploitation. End quote. In contrast, Israelite literature is replete with admonitions to choose the path or road that leads to life including texts in Deuteronomy, that urge the people to choose the path or road that will create a just and sustainable society. So when Matthew's Jesus speaks of gates and roads, the imagery is powerful in the minds of the original audience. Matthew's Jesus knows that not only will people be tempted by the easier road, but that there will be people who infiltrate the movement to corrupt it by urging people to follow that deceptively comfortable way. So he says in verse 15, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. The image of the false prophet in the first century was closely associated with the propaganda of the Roman Empire. The book of Revelation, somewhat contemporary with Matthew, speaks of the false prophet, who serves the beast, which is an image of Rome. Continuing on about the false prophets, Jesus says in verses 6 to 20, You will know them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorns or figs from thistles? In the same way, every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will know them by their fruits. While it may sound to us that Jesus is using the metaphor of a tree as an image for individuals, he is actually using this image to connect the false prophets to the empire. Trees are often symbols of kingdoms or empires in ancient Israelite literature. The image of cutting down trees and throwing them into the fire comes out of the prophets, where these metaphors are used for the fall of empires. Jesus says that these false prophets can be discerned because they relate to him as if he were their patron in the Greco-Roman sense. Jesus says in verses 21 to 23, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. On that day many will say to me lord lord did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many deeds of power in your name then i will declare to them i never knew you go away from me you evil doers Jesus says that you can tell these false prophets by their fruit they relate to Jesus as if they were brokers in an imperial patronage system they say lord lord and boast of what they have been able to do in the name of Jesus but what Jesus requires is not brokerage of his benefits upon the people for his own praise. What he requires is that people do the will of the Heavenly Father, the Father who supersedes and displaces all the fathers of the Roman patronage system. Jesus is not a Roman patron and does not want his followers to be his brokers. He wants everyone to follow the will of God and implement an economy of mutual aid in a new society of equality, justice, and mercy. Jesus then wraps up his speech with a little parable about building a house. In verses 24 to 27, he says, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a wise man who built his house on a rock. The rain fell, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall, because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain fell, and the floods came, and the wind blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. Again, we modern readers are tempted to interpret this parable to be about individuals building their individual lives. But the term house was a term used for kingdoms and societies. It is commonly used this way in the Bible. For example, there are numerous references to the house of Jacob. In the Roman propaganda, the empire is known as the house of Caesar. So Jesus is talking about building the new society, the new house of justice and mercy that will operate through peasant solidarity and mutual aid. This house, he says, provides a more secure foundation for the people. It is like a house built on rock. The current society, in which over half of the population is malnourished or starving, is a house, a society, built on sand. The image of building a house comes out of the Hebrew wisdom literature. Proverbs 9, 1-6 reads, Wisdom has built her house. She has also set her table. You that are simple, turn in here. To those without sense, she says, Come, eat of my bread and drink of my wine. Jesus, the peasant wisdom teacher, has built a house with this revolutionary speech. He invites his hearers to partake at his table. Later, toward the end of this story, he will sit down at a Passover table with his closest friends and invite them to eat his bread and drink his wine as symbols of his body and blood. After Jesus finishes his speech, Matthew makes a significant statement about the crowd's reaction. Verse 28 reads, Now when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority, and not as their scribes. Matthew contrasts Jesus with the scribes because the scribes were the wisdom teachers in Israel. And Matthew is presenting Jesus as a wisdom teacher. So Matthew's statement here amounts to a socio-political reversal. The scribes come from the upper classes and have had the benefit of an elite education. Jesus is an illiterate peasant, yet Jesus is the one whose authority rings true to the people. Additionally, the fact that the people recognize Jesus' authority and not that of the scribes portends revolution in itself because the scribes referenced here are part of the temple establishment, the puppet government of Rome in Israel. Recognizing Jesus as having authority rather than the scribes means that the people have switched political allegiance from the Roman puppet government in Jerusalem to a peasant social revolutionary. Please visit our Facebook page, Parody and Subversion. In Matthew's Gospel. My name is Bert Newton. The theme music is provided by Bob Nolte and Dave Martin. And this has been Episode 14 of Bible Study Parody and Subversion in Matthew's Gospel. <laughs>